0: Uh, kia ora no Koto, uh, this is uh, Bruce White again, and we're first uh, the second of our series of podcasts. We did the sound check already, so we won't have to do the sound check this time during the course of the podcast. Um, my name is Bruce White. I'm copyright and open access advisor at Mesa University.
1: Kia ora Koto, this is Amanda Kurno again. Um, I manage the repository here at Mesa University. I'm Catherine Woba. I'm a subject librarian in the library. Um, I wasn't part of uh, the first podcast, but it's uh, great to be part of the second. Yep, and we're pleased to have you here. Thank yes, you, thank you.
0: Yep, <laughs> yep. Okay, just I wanted to go and recap a bit on what we did last time because we covered a lot of ground. We looked we at the we looked at the history of the journal from. Um, it's in 16- 1660. <laughs> um, well, prior to 1660, in fact, and, and got ourselves up to really the 1980s with the history of the print journal. Um, I think last time round, uh, we were quite European focused. We focused in the end on just two things Elsevier um, and on uh, Pergamon President Robert Maxwell. Uh, so that gives us the Netherlands and the UK. On the other hand, they have been the main drivers of of journal prices. Right. Uh, I've been looking at the U.S. situation a bit as well. The U.S. tended to be more scholarly societies; journal prices tended to be lower. Mm-hmm. But what libraries were buying, they libraries were still having to buy um, journals at you know at U.S. prices from uh, European and, and British publishers uh so that's really why why I think we we'd had that focus um,
1: and we did justify yeah. it by saying that um, yeah. other like the Japanese and the yeah. and other areas yeah. were very similar in the way that they developed as well
0: that's exactly right yeah. yeah yeah but but you know if if you if we follow what's going on at the moment the the emphasis is always on elsevier and yeah. you know the, the british and uh, um, and and, and European publishers. So, so that's kind of the reason for that. The other thing that, looking at at our historical approach, it's I think it can be justified uh, in that we're looking at open access as a disruptive force mm-hmm. and as a new force, and we've, we've got to contextualise. So we're now on our second open access podcast, and you'll be pleased to no, know we probably won't deal with open access very much, but... Um, <laughs> But we need we need to we need to make it quite clear yeah. why this happened. We need and to what set the stage. Yeah, we mean. need to set the scene exactly. Yeah. yeah. So the other thing that underlies all of this politically is the idea of a of a journal, and again, Maxwell. If you listened to last week's podcast. Uh, Maxwell really exemplified this, and Ross Bell, is the idea of the journal as a community. Right. Uh, that, that's, that's, the, that's the bit that they stumbled onto. Mm-hmm. That if you look at the communities that scholars lived in, they lived within their university or their research institute, then they lived within their scholarly community, which was defined by the scholarly societies. Right, correct. And that was simply not working uh, by the 19, 1940s and 1950s that those scholarly societies were simply not flexible enough, they were too big to take in all these all these sub disciplines. Uh, so that, you know, the journal often became kind of the thing around which a around which a scientific specialization coalesced. Right. It grew, you know, mm-hmm. like like dropping things into the ocean for muscles to grow, <laughs> if you get that idea. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the the communities that, that academics lived live in mm-hmm. are their local university community, mm-hmm. and then they're their international community, which of their lives, colleagues in their of, of their colleagues in their field, field. Yeah. and the yeah. journal yeah. is there of that. And you yeah. know, if we want to go back to the seventeenth century again, that's the invisible college, you right. see. Yeah. Except it's made visible by the journal, and you've got a sense of the fact that this was an important community when you cancelled a journal because people really felt distraught yes. because they had been chucked out. If they weren't getting the latest issue of their journal, they had essentially been chucked out of that of that community. Right. Or they wanted libraries to subscribe to a journal because they wanted to belong to that community. I
1: see what you're saying, yeah.
0: Yeah. Okay. So, librarians belong to... A slightly different set of communities. They belong to the university community. Yes. They belong to a different part of the university community than academics. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a fair amount of mixing between academics and, and librarians, but they're still different parts of the community. Um, and then librarians belong to the library community, which mm-hmm. is quite a different type of community from these scholarly communities. It tends to be larger and it tends to overlap with people in public libraries. Mm-hmm. You know, if you look at if you look, I started working in public libraries. Right. Came to a university library, didn't expect to spend most of my working life dealing with super expensive journals. So my background was <laughs> yes. very idealistic right. and, and very kind of, uh, you know, ready-made for open access, you know, the idea of bringing knowledge to people. It's not that academics are against that idea so much as they don't particularly care about it. Yes. That's not what yes. made them yeah, not do good. what they do. Yeah. Um. So we've got those two kind of communities working across and not against one another, but working a bit slightly okay. at slightly <laughs> at tangents. Okay.
1: I found that's really helpful yeah. that you explained that yeah. that the journals were a way that academics coalesced around yeah, they kind of coalesced around a journal, a particular yeah. sub topic. Yeah. 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 yeah.
0: Oh, and and you know. know the, the publishers were really smart at doing that, and again, you know, going back to Maxwell, mm. they were spotting that. They were out mm. there; they got out to talk to far more people because they could throw big parties <laughs> and get people on. <laughs> Librarians, we do try and throw, throw parties for people. You know, the, the, the food and wine aren't is good. <laughs> anyway, we won't go there. Um, so, situation by the kind of nineteen eighties was that after. Journal prices started rising. You know, After the economic turbulence of the 1970s, you got what was called an, a vicious cycle. I've called it here a non-virtuous spiral. Mm-hmm. Spiraled down. Subscription numbers were declining. The publishers still wanted to keep up their profit margins mm-hmm. and they still wanted to be able to invest. Mm-hmm. They were getting cancellations. And the way they dealt with cancellations was to raise the prices. Yes. <laughs> so that... They got the same amount of money, or tried to get the same amount of money off less subscriptions. Now that's a risky mm. that's a risky thing because that leads to further cancellations, which is it's why spiral, yeah. why why it becomes a nasty downward spiral. Yeah. Except there were obviously some libraries still paying the high prices. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yep. So the big institutions mm-hmm. could still pay big bucks. So there was a gap in those terms between the haves and the have nots. And that, I think becomes quite interesting, you know, when you look at the history, which we're going to do of the big deal. Right. Did we say we were going to talk about the big deal today? No, I, don't I don't think, think we so. introduced <laughs> this podcast is about the big deal. <laughs> so we're five minutes out. Yeah. Now you know what we're talking about. <laughs> okay, this becomes really interesting in terms of the big deal and the fact that large large institutions sometimes behaved a bit differently. Okay, and large institutions didn't necessarily do as well out of the big deal. We'll come to reasons of that. The other bit that I didn't talk about last time um, was the, the difference between personal and library subscriptions. The other thing that was invented um, at some stage, and I, I I don't have the...
1: The screenshot to show
0: us. Yeah, don't yeah. have the <laughs> screenshot. Don't have the references to give you, I'm afraid. So if, if you know the references, write in and complain or write in and tell us. Um, but personal subscriptions, and this was particularly if you belong to the society... So people, as part of their society membership, got subscription to the journal. So you know the, yeah, yeah, yeah. For, the the American Society for Microbiology. If you're a member, you paid X amount for subscription, and with that, you got a sub to the journal.
1: Yeah. So what was that thing that you sent us the other day? That was um, a, a library had a subscription, and then you could get a personal yeah. subscription if your institution
0: had that, a subscription. And that well, that's, was like that, a, th- that, a tenth
1: of the, the price. Tenth that's was the that's price. right. Yes, well, yes. this this was.
0: I'll, I'll just continue saying what personal <laughs> subscriptions... No, good to bring it up, to say what personal subscriptions were. So so with the, with the society, and actually libraries sometimes used to have to belong to scholarly societies in order to get the journal because yes. that was the only way oh. that they could get it. Yes. You're, you're, you're familiar with Absolutely. that. Absolutely.
1: It's still the model that yeah. obtains in the... Um, Uh, Archives and Records Association here in New Zealand, is partly a problem. We can never get um, responses to our voting because we don't know at which institution is the contact member. Yeah. So uh, it it is an ongoing problem.
0: Yeah. 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 So, and often the personal sub was a bit, and then they came up with a library sub, you see, to get around this, there was a library, and particularly the, the so the library would pay a bit more. Yes. Um, Sometimes there was so yeah. Sometimes the library just had to become a personal member, which is a bit wacky. Other times, then they invented the library sub. Now, at some point, the commercial publishers got hold of this and realised, oh, we can have personal and library subs. So, so people could get a personal subscription to a journal for a way lot less, but they weren't allowed to place that that in the library. Exactly. Yes. And that was a way of tying. Scholars to the journal
1: because you Mm -hmm. know
0: they get you know one hundred and thirty bucks a year. Yeah, they could get that out of their funds. Sometimes they'd pay for it out of their pocket. You know, they get it off the head of department. And typically, they'd subscribe to one or two journals, which were their little community. Mm -hmm. Um, They they might only keep the most recent couple of years and then and then throw them away. Um, They would rely on the library to have the main subscription and for backfiles. Yes. Mm -hmm. And often around the place you get these little departmental libraries which weren't really supposed to exist because they were all made out of personal, personal, personal subscriptions. subscriptions. <laughs> yes. And sometimes libraries, you know, paid a whole lot more. And the example that, that Amanda referred to was, was it was, oh, again, dear. Pergamon Press, tetrahedron letters. And I just went and hunted around in the library the other day and came across that I couldn't find a personal sub um, apart from this one. But it was from the subscription page of Tetrahedron Letters um, from 1985, and the library subscription was $13.50 a year. It wasn't 52 issues a year, you know, so although we say, you know, wow, that's a lot of dosh, it's actually not that much compared with the journal I talked about last week, which published... Twenty-five articles a year. You yes. know, this was publishing fifty-two issues a year, but it's still a lot. But anyway, this was a Maxwell one published out of Maxwell House or Hemingway Hall or wherever it was. <laughs> Maxwell House is a brand of coffee, isn't it? But I think it also also <laughs> the name of where they worked out of. Thirteen fifteen annum per annum. The personal sub was one hundred and thirty-five dollars, but you could only get the personal sub if your library had a subscription. Yep. So, this was. You'd, oh, okay. Like Gee, up. we can get this cheaply, yeah. but the library has to have a subscription. And secondly, this is the this is the nasty part. What happens if the library cancels their sub?
1: Yeah. <laughs> Everybody go. Yes. So you know this
0: yeah. was this was a this was like an offer you can't refuse. Really, <laughs> <laughs> you know. And then if the yeah. library did yeah. close their sub or whatever, then they they would yeah. have unhappy academics. So Yep, yeah, yep. that's right. Yeah, punish the children. It Mm. always works. Um, So that was there. Now, the other thing, I'm just going back, kind of reclaiming a bit of history, um, is going to 1986. And this quote from, just to show these ideas were bubbling along before the 1990s, because we're about to leap forward to the 1990s. This is a quote from Patricia Batten was in the US, the first president of the Commission on Preservation and Access. So clearly, they were thinking of both those things. You know, we need to get access to people for information, mm-hmm. and we also need to make sure that it's ongoing. there's ongoing holding on to things. Yeah. So the quote is, and I'll read it out, the advent of electronic capabilities provides the university with the potential for becoming the primary publisher in the scholarly communication process. At the present time, we are in the untenable position of generating knowledge, giving it away to the commercial publisher, and then buying it back for our scholars at increasingly prohibitive prices. So, 1986, 32 years ago. And the interesting thing is we've all heard those phrases a lot, and we've seen them ourselves, you know, universities create knowledge, give it away to publishers and buy it back. But that's that's a very early clear statement of it and this this was a this was a real concern and it's it's you know it's an untenable as I said it's a crisis which has been going on for a long time uh, so going forward into the 1990s now on the eve of the big deal did I say we were talking about the big deal Yes we're talking yeah. about the big deal okay <laughs> We'll go ahead and put a bit of at the start. We say this is about the big deal. We we'll yeah. call it the big deal. That's right. Okay. Two quotes from 1995. One is a well-known one from Forbes magazine article. Started. It's hard to imagine a sweeter business than publishing academic journals. <laughs> <laughs> and this was when the magazine reported that Reed Elsevier, Elsevier known to us. Publisher of over eleven hundred academic journals had pre-tax profits of forty percent on two hundred twenty-five million dollars in journal sales. So that's why their
1: wine is better at their
0: yeah (laughs) exactly. They may have been they may have been um, in a worrying about a downward spiral, but they were still doing all right. And the forty percent, and this is why also you know companies don't like. Their profits going down, you know, to the supermarket level profits of a few percent.
1: Yes, because they used to bigger. They used they used to, mm. yeah.
0: You know, they used to flying first class and driving around in nice cars and and uh, you know not wearing suits that make them look like beer salesman. Um, <laughs> that's the latest suit insult I've heard from. I won't tell you who. Um, okay, the second one is is um, from an article. This is not a. This is not an absolute quote. This is some bits I took out of the second or third paragraph of an article by Donald King and, and Jose Marie Griffiths, an article in Library Trends in 1995. Is that right? Yeah, yes, I've got no. it right in front of me. Um, and Donald Griffiths is the guy who kind of he was the go-to guy for stuff about was maybe he still is the go-to guy for stuff about publishing and journal prices and so on. And I just want to emphasize before I get to this, this is not one of those ha-ha, how-did-they-get-it-so-wrong things because it's really difficult for people to predict what is happening and what's about to happen. But in terms of the big deal, this is really interesting. Um, They listed four types. An article in Library Trends, again, note the name of the journal, listed four types of electronic distribution of scholarly articles. The first type was full-text journals online. And I'll quote, full text of journals made deliverable online by commercial database vendors. This distribution is like electronic delivery of interlibrary loans or articles contained through document delivery services. When I first read that, the full text of journals available online, I thought it was like what we have at the moment, where you go in and look at volume, and maybe it was, that's what they were thinking, volume eight, number six, and so on. But what you would then do, rather than just clicking to open the thing, is that you would buy it at that right. point. Right. Oh, okay. But you would buy it for a reasonable, not not like for forty dollars, right? Which is which is what we currently have. You see. Right. Okay. So the idea was that they would be selling. Per, on a per-article basis, right? Okay, but the whole of the journal would be online, and whether whether the library would buy it on a per-article basis or the academic and so on. But that was that was one form of delivery, right. and as I said, it would be like interlibrary loan was the mm-hmm. was the, the the their analogy. The second one was image files on CD-ROM. <laughs> yes, I
1: remember the
0: CD-ROM. Yeah. There, there we can kind of laugh, yeah, yeah, yeah. laugh slightly scoffingly. Um, uh, yeah, that happened, but it wasn't the real thing. Then there was true electronic journals. These are journals made available only by electronic publishing using the internet or other networks. Now that has kind of happened, but they saw this as as quite a separate thing from print journals. Right. So, so I just yeah. want
1: to clarify that you're that, that this is about. E-born e or an E-native, e yeah. digitally native. Yeah, that's journals. right. And this was Rather a new set of journals. Print. Yeah, yeah. Okay.
0: and cool. that happened to some extent. A lot of things in the nineteen nineties. You got the internet journal of yep. philosophy, and the internet. So, so, oh. so, so, that that did happen to some extent. Okay. Right. Um, but of course, that was, you know, we'll maybe come back and talk about that um, mm-hmm. when we we talk about open access too, but. but this may have been a commercial model, you know, where, where you bought that, but the idea is this was a separate set of journals from the print journals, and their, their fourth, um, their fourth type of electronic distribution, interestingly, was they talked about the idea that academically written scholarly articles be be published by university presses and libraries, <laughs> and they saw. That is a way forward, and that's still being yeah. talked about too, and it, yeah. is still, it has still happened.
1: That's right, yes, because it, it cuts out the whole giving away yeah, of the yeah, um, yeah. knowledge uh, to yeah. commercial publishers. Yeah, it that's right. cuts out that middle...
0: But the interesting thing about those four different types, and without scoffing, you know, laughing in a scoffing and knowing way 20 years later, yeah. is that it didn't include what actually happened the following year. Um. I just want to um, scoop back though. Before that, one of the other things that, that had happened in the eighties and nineties, which was really important in these terms, because mm-hmm. all of these assume kind of uh, those last to assume that printed, print, and electronic are quite different things. Whereas one of the things that happened in the eighties and nineties was the development of the PDF. Yeah, and that's quite interesting, and the isn't it? PDF is looks. And feels yeah. like print, you know. Yeah. So, you know, I've printed this article off, and I couldn't tell you whether it was from PDF or whether, mm-hmm. you know, it was a scan from a printed journal.
1: Yes. Actually, I do remember when I did my research for my master's, I didn't even bother saying, you know, this was online from such and such, even though yeah. I got the electronic version because yeah. <laughs> it looked exactly the same as yeah. the print version.
0: Yes. So. That's right. And that, that was the whole idea. Yeah. Because before that, there had been a set of databases where sometimes you got this embedded, you know, full text, so things like ABI Inform uh, would contain the text of the articles, mm-hmm. um, and so, and for some journals they had the text. So, so essentially, the certain databases which normally only had like um, references and abstracts also contained the full text of the articles.
1: But interestingly, it wasn't in the same format as not and, and academics was, didn't like that. Did it was they? just that's exactly yeah. the point. It was yeah. just
0: text, and we librarians coming from a different background. Said, mm. But, hey, it's the same words.
1: Yes. (laughs)
0: No, 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 no.
1: Yes. And actually, this is possibly why they have the problem with accepted manuscripts versus the published version being available in the repository.
0: That's right. So we're going to come and talk about that that later when we look at green open access and Mm -hmm. gold open access. But it's it's
1: interesting that you bring that up. All of this is
0: very relevant. So the PDF looked... It was great though you could search through it, mm-hmm. you know. So you could search through to see if your name was mentioned. You didn't have to read the whole thing. <laughs> um, you could you could dig into it, but it looked and felt like print, and it had the page numbers and so on. And it was issue issue number nine, volume three, exactly the same format as print. So that was all happening, mm-hmm. and the publishers were putting out parallel print and. PDF versions of the journal and there were dual price schemes and you could pay, you know, an extra thousand bucks to get the PDF version. I don't know that they were very much into cancelling print at that stage, but I just don't recall. There would have been all sorts of, all sorts of things. But what what then happened in 1996, January 1996, is that the big deal happened, Right. Right. So I've i just given that this nifty heading there, disrupting the disruptors. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite difficult. Sorry, you're going to say something. No,
1: there. no. So, but what you actually mean by that is that the, the, the electronic uh, publishing is is kind of the disruptor. So the big yeah. deal is disrupting.
0: So yeah. The, right. Yeah, that's right. Because all these things had the some of these suggestions would have disrupted journal publishing. Yes. So the publishers came and disrupted back. Yes, I guess is what I'm saying. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's really difficult, and this is the interesting thing about doing historically to find historical coverage of, of things which are still happening. Right. Okay. Um, so, so we will have some reference when we get this up on the web. We'll have some references, and the best one I found is Richard Pointer's article. Richard Poynter is really good on this sort of thing, mm-hmm. and he has a, he has a really good sense of history, and he's been involved with this for a long time. So an article he wrote in, I've got in front of me, no I don't. Um, 2011? 2011 article, The Big, the big deal. deal, Not Price But Cost. Yeah. Um, uh, and it was, it was written during the dispute between uh, the UK librarians and, and the journal publishers. And that dispute was eventually sorted out, but Pointer wrote a very nice kind of historical summary, and I still think it's the best because there's a review article from 2016 which cites Pointer's article as as the kind of historical
1: background.